My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Eumenides, good morrow to you. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, bringing you another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Friends and listeners, I just got back from taking my boys and the woman who walks beside me to Broadway. Their first time, my second. I talk about it quite a bit at the beginning of the interview today, but that trip is going to have me riding high for some time. Plus, I just love New York. I mean, I'm in a rural part of the country and always felt a little more at home in a metro, but there's just something special about New York. My boys and Andrew got to see their first Broadway shows, and we're still talking about them. Oh, and plus, I now have a whole new line of drinking glasses. My souvenir cups from the shows we saw. <laughs> and I visited the drama bookshop and got another few books that will help me in developing new episodes. I got some great help from their employee at the information desk. His name was David. So if you're listening, David, thanks for all your suggestions. But enough about that trip. Let's shout out some new places where I'm seeing listeners. Hello to my listeners in Kansas and Quebec. As always, the offer is open. If you'd like to have me come to your area and do an in-person episode of the podcast, my dance card is pretty open. However, I'm working on a couple possibilities for those in the future. I can't say too much about it now, but man, there's some exciting stuff going on behind the scenes here. So, hey, how about we get into today's episode, huh? I bring back my old friend and guest from episode 26, Seattle-based actor Lisa Vertel, who also did a horror story episode with me. And once you're done with this episode, go back and listen to those. But for this episode, I'm bringing back the format that I did for episode 49, the play Spotlight. So, look, there are just so many incredibly influential plays out there that very rarely get talked about. So I want to dust them off because they've still got a lot of life in them. Today's play being spotlighted was suggested to me by an old friend who really wanted me to put it on because it parodies two subjects very near and dear to his heart, philosophy and education. We talk about it a lot in the episode, but it's not that often that comedies approach big topics like this anymore. So I think maybe it's worth considering to emulate some of these from the past. I'd love to hear your thoughts after you listen to the episode. So, Let's get into it. Today's episode, a spotlight on the ancient Greek comedy by Aristophanes, The Clouds. Man, 
What a week. Uh, just got back from Broadway. That was so much fun. Took my fam to see uh, uh, well, my partner, Andrew, the woman who walks beside me. I said, we're going to Broadway. I, I'm taking us to Broadway. And she goes, can we see the Lion King? And I'm like, uh, okay, okay. And my older son, Mike, went and he he and I just did that episode on Shakespeare Adapted and he wanted to see it too. So we saw that. And then, Lisa, we saw Josh Groban in Sweeney oh. Todd. Oh my God. So I'm super torn, but I want to hear everything that you said. Because okay. I'm like, I'm OG, OG Sweeney fan. So all right. Tell me what you thought. Okay. Then, okay. I'm going to flip your wig on this. Okay. And no, you don't wear a wig. You have fantastic hair. Anyway. Look at this. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Groban's voice lended so well to that score. I mean, he's got an amazing voice anyway. Absolutely incredible voice. Yeah. His Sweeney was like kind of the uh, proletarian worker done wrong, right? So it was very like, I have a profession. It is my life. My life lends itself to uh, providing for my wife and child. Okay. But I identify myself as the barber. And being wronged in that way, it was almost like taking the fact that he was a barber away from him was more important than losing his wife and child. Oh, which was very, a very cool, like it it was very neat. It was very relatable. You know, he wasn't this character who's so completely focused on his vengeance, even though that is always looming. Yeah. it it, it was more he's like i just got to get this job done okay we can sit and have conversation but i just need you to know we got to get this judge killed that's how this is going to work out instead of being like focused like a hamlet type of like i must kill i must have my revenge it was very neat that way and uh, you know the downplaying was cool but also it made the the bigger moments really pop wow yeah um but I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something incredibly controversial. Unequivocally, right now, Anna Lee Ashford is my favorite Mrs. Lovett. I, I, ooh. so like my neck just tensed up super hard. And I want to have space in my heart, you know, like oh, yeah. I want to be able to do it, but I just, Like, I even, I don't know if you saw that concert version that they did with um, Michael, Mm, mm -hmm. Michael C, Michael Michael Cerberus, and and Patty, and I was like, and it was Len Carriou as well, who was the very first Sweeney. Yeah, and uh, Patty's Mrs. Lovett Wall, I understood a few more detailed things with her. I just Mm -hmm. was sitting there going, ugh, Patty Lupone, am I right? (laughs) <laughs> no one but angela right when you're, and, when you're oh. sitting there rolling your eyes at patty lupone i i think i need to like unclench my sphincter a little bit <laughs> um interesting i might yeah. i hope they do a cast recording i'd love to hear it. it it's in the works as far as i understand it's in the works and and her singing of it was pretty standard you know, I mean, that part doesn't have a lot of huge singing to it. You know, they leave that to uh, Joanna. But the way she added a level of flirtatiousness to almost everything she did, it was so, so.
so welcome, you know, because because you're like, why is she helping him so much? Like, I know. But in this, she found like, I yeah, while I could actually get my pie shop to do well, I have this handsome, sexy man. That she I've could known. Get her pie shop to do well. <laughs> oh, get it? Uh, <laughs> yes. Stick your thumb in Jack Horner. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> but one thing that I was thinking of that that made me go, "Oh my God, you're doing something new and you're doing something different." Was there's a scene, uh, the scene where Judge Turpin decides to go get his his uh, beard shaved yes. from Sweeney Todd, right? So he comes to the bottom of the stairs that lead up to Sweeney's uh, shop, and Annalie Ashford is there, and she's like, oh, pleasure to meet your acquaintance, my lord, and does this bow that is a full curtsy, which means you go down and you touch your ankles. But she is on the stairs, so her front foot goes way down and hits a stair like three stairs below her back foot. Oh, my God. And so she can't get up from that position without it being very awkward in front of this very austere gentleman. And so she slides down the stairs in the full curtsy. And you can just see her little head bump, 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 oh bump my as God. she's going. It was so funny. The whole house was just roaring with with laughter and oh. She did stuff like that through the entire thing and unequivocally amazing. And we got her autograph at the stage door. No so way. Her and Josh and Gaten Matarazzo from oh Stranger my God. Things. Who, who Gaten is he playing Toby? He played Tobias. He was no, brilliant. Sorry, Tobias. No, yeah. he was amazing. Like and, and and even my son, my younger son Ethan, is a big fan of it, like I am. And he was like, it was so cool to watch him go mad at the end. It was just so cool to watch him descend. Oh, I forget he's got that Broadway cred because didn't he was in Les Mis when he was um yeah a wee yep. one yeah Damn. yeah so very cool very cool but right on. that's that's my adventures and Lisa we've been sitting here trying to talk about uh, getting you on the show again and it's been difficult because uh, you've been so busy with other stuff so theater happening up in Seattle it sounds like. It is. We, I mean, in some ways have not, but in most ways have fully recovered from COVID. And I, it, uh, during COVID, I was like, I, you know, this, it's nice to be rested. I, I need to pace out my work. And this is, you know, I can, I have a clear head, but you know, the stuff starts rolling in and I'm like a greedy little monster. I'm like, oh gig, man. Gig, yes. gig, gig. So I've been <laughs> super busy um, with shows. But the funnest thing I got just got to do was uh, the ABC of Australia, Australian Broadcasting Corporation out of Melbourne, does a travel podcast, and they uh, put out a call for someone with a Seattle accent. I don't know what that's supposed to be, but they needed a barista, you know, at the first Starbucks because the as they toured through Seattle, of course, they went to the first Starbucks. And I only had like three lines. It was like, you know, Americano for Jonathan or whatever, but... It was so awesome to be on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's website and podcast. Oh, man. And I have a crappy old Samsung Galaxy S9, but I, like, went into a closet at work at 6.30 in the morning so there'd be no noise. You know, did three takes of every line. I sent them to the producer with, like, all these, you know, I I, I think those folks don't 
they're like, oh my God, actors. Cause I was like, I gave everyone, you know, I came from a different <laughs> spot with every line. Like, you know, this one, I wasn't sure on the Americano. This one, I knew I'd made the great Americano, whatever. This one, I couldn't tell what the name was cause they spelled it weird. Right. <laughs> but anyway, that's been cool. <laughs> Oh, so that's awesome! Though. That's bee. great. That's <laughs> great, though, and and I love to hear that. I, it's so interesting to me because, like, uh, you know, I as I was talking, we we just got back and saw the Lion King, and uh, I'm telling my boys, I'm like, now here's what's interesting about this. This is now one of those Broadway legacy shows because it's been there for 26 years now. Doesn't that blow your mind? It blows oh. my mind. That blows my mind. But it's it survived. But a lot of things are already closing. And, you know, a lot of them were saying, like, limited engagement must end this date. And and I'm going, okay, so Broadway's figuring out what it is again, I guess. And and we're we're seeing some new stuff. We're seeing some old stuff, you know? I mean, so, uh, this was why I booked this trip. I'm like, I had it as a life goal to see Sweeney Todd on Broadway. If they ever going to revive it again, I wanted to go. And so I got my shot and I saw it. Um, but it was so neat to see all kinds of new stuff going up. Uh, and, and And I just love hearing that, how... So many different towns are like, okay, so we did have this in the past before the pandemic. Now we have this industry we're making, uh, we're tapping into. And so cool that the podcasting market, <laughs> cool. Hey, gods of podcasting, uh, pick this shit up. I am really <laughs> ready to soar to the highest of heights. Yeah, I'll be the wind beneath your wings. Boom. I have a former star of the episode of Visiting Seattle uh, from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation on the program today. remember her pithy reading of Americano for Jonathan. (laughs) Tune in. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, that's awesome. And I'm glad for you. I'm glad that, uh, that gigs are still coming and they're staying. It sounds like they are keeping coming. That's great. All right. Well, Lisa, I brought you here for a reason today. Um, I am putting on my old teacher's cap again today, and I have decided that I, I'm branching out. I've found a lot of different new episode types that I'm enjoying, and there's a lot of, a lot of uh, potential for each one of them. And this one today is going to be another play spotlight. So those of you who listened to, I believe it was episode 49 on the Spanish Renaissance play Fuentio Vejuna. You may have never heard of it before, but it was a massively influential piece in the history of theater. And today it's going to be no different. So Lisa, you ready for a bit of a lesson today? I'm, I, I'm teach me, guide me. I'm ready. Teach me. <laughs> I am putty in your hands. Okay. Yeah. So I will say this, it can be difficult to fully understand the comedy in a play from another era, as the cultures, morals, civics, and ethics change from era to era for varying reasons. I mean, you know, you and I are both in theater a lot, and everybody talks about, well, when you talk about theater, you have to talk about Shakespeare, and when you talk about Shakespeare, you know, he could speak to the high and mighty, and he could speak to the groundlings, and and they all got the jokes, right? Um. In his essay that serves as an introduction to an anthology of Greek and Roman comedies, and I don't know if this is the actual guy or not, might just be a similar, uh, uh, the same name, Donald Sutherland. No, I almost said the S word. Yeah, no kidding. That's okay. You can say no shit. Okay. (laughs) Donald Sutherland 
complains that comedies don't go as far as they used to in putting a mirror up to society. He posits that serious contemplation about very serious matters can come from comedy, much as occurred in ancient Greece, particularly in the genre we now know as old comedy. Now, old comedy would take on huge topics such as war, politics, elections, education, sex, etc., etc., whereas the comedies in the 1970s and 1980s rarely approached grave topics like that. You know, I think back on it, I'm like, that was the heyday of Neil Simon. Yeah, and, and like noises off and yeah, yeah. And yeah. so your comedies are like about marriage or you know rent or you know stuff like that. It's something that yeah, I think people can relate to, but it's not necessarily affecting the world as a whole. It's just affecting the one microcosm, and so it's it's just basically, I think Sutherland is saying it's kind of fluff. Mm. you know what i mean and i can see his point you know um i was listening to another podcast today and and they were talking about literature from the past and and uh one one of the hosts is like uh oh you don't like this story because it has to deal with romance <laughs> and the other one's like, oh yeah i hate romantic comedies and i'm like oh interesting because you know romance isn't always romantic comedies Right, right. You know, so uh, I'm like, but that's that when we hear the word romance, that's right where we go. Guy tries to sleep with girl. Girl is standoffish for whatever reason. Do they get together? Yeah, they're probably going to get together. Probably. But, you know, that that's the stuff of it. But in many ways, Greek old comedy could be considered some of the best political commentary ever written. Agreed. Yeah. The only complete existing examples of old comedy all come from one playwright, Aristophanes. And as an example of political commentary, we could probably discuss his play Lysistrata ad infinitum. <laughs> right? I did, it. I did it in college. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, I See, okay. That's interesting because... I'm going to let my audience go out and Google that if they don't know the playlist Estrada. Here's what I'll say. Can you imagine just how monumental an actual sex strike led by women would be in this country? Yep. You know, it's like, I mean, Roe v. Wade gets overturned last year, and I don't mean to joke about that. I do not. I, I find that a terrible thing to happen. But can you imagine if the next day women went, oh, Okay, we don't have uh, reproductive rights. Cool. We won't be having sex anymore. Period. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, really, like a sex strike led by women in this country would be just so, I think it would be incredibly effective. We'd finally get to have some autonomy about our our bodies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> On that <laughs> yeah, one thing. <right. laughs> yeah, it's like, nope, not happening. And and can you see just how quickly things would be like, all right, we'll come to the table to discuss. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yep. However, today, I thought we'd discuss another of Aristophanes' brilliant plays. Now, are you familiar with a lot of Aristophanic works? I um, actually only know Lysistrata, but I'm trying to, mm -hmm. is it, is there one called The Frogs? There is one called The Frogs, yes. Okay. That's not what we're discussing today. Oh, Although God. that's an interesting one because it does deal with uh, <laughs> uh, modern Greek playwrights of the time. 
and commenting on them in real time. And yeah. So it was like a disc track, but an ancient Greek uh, disc track. It was like a disc track. It was a disc track. Yeah. Uh, that one, I think the characters go to hell and find Euripides. And they uh, <laughs> <laughs> almost got a spit take from Lisa Vertel. Yep. That's awesome. But no, today I want to spotlight his consideration of philosophy and its place in society. Today, we'll be discussing the Aristophanes play, The Clouds. Do you know anything about The Clouds? I know literally nothing. I know the name. I've heard of it. I'm so (laughs) sorry. (laughs) So before we go into the plot, I want to just remind everybody, and this is kind of the lesson part, so you understand where we're going with this and how Greek comedy is structured. I want to just go through the structure of what a, uh, ancient Greek comedy is. And and this is this is always funny to me when I talk about stuff like this, because most of the stuff we get about this is from Aristotle's The Poetics, which I will remind people is primarily a book of observations. <laughs> so he would go to the theater and he would go, it would seem that comedies go like this. And then in the next era in Rome, you have Horace going, this is what theater is. And if it's not this, it's not theater. So yeah, <laughs> it's not Scottish. It's crap. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. So we have several elements to a, uh, ancient greek old comedy the first is called the prologue and this is where characters come out and a happy idea is introduced so in the uh, example of lysistrata we have women who are going i'm really upset that all our men are at war how about we go on strike from sex and see how that affects things okay so yeah that's a prologue the the next part is called the parados which is the introduction of the chorus and as we're familiar uh the chorus is something of uh, another character but they represent mm-hmm. the voice of like a particular group of people or an entity or something like that mm-hmm. okay and the chorus can speak directly to the characters but they all speak as one voice then you have what they call the parabasis which is when the chorus speaks directly to the audience after hearing the prologue and being introduced as something that can comment on the on the current situation. And what their point is, as the parabasis, is that in, in old comedy, they point out the flaw in the happy idea. So, you know, it's a very similar thing in tragedy where they talk about, oh, you know, Oedipus, you know, he's too proud and he thinks he's going to be able to circumvent the will of the gods. In in this example, it's, uh, well, this idea is fun in theory, but I tell you what, it's probably not going to work out. Then you have episodes where the happy idea is put into practice. In the example of Lysa Strata, there's that great scene, oh my God, Lisa, where that military officer comes home and he's like, honey, I've come home and I'm home only for a short amount of time. Let's get busy. And she's like, oh, yes, absolutely. But oh, wait, I got to go wash my hair or oh, wait, you need your slippers or oh, wait, I bet you're hungry. And every time she goes off and and you can just see his phallus like getting harder and harder. And he's like, oh, God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen. (laughs) So you have your episodes. You also have what they call an agon, A-G-O-N. And this is a debate between two characters over the merits 
of this happy idea. So, you know, in the Lysistrata scene or Lysistrata example, it's is a sex strike good? One side says yes, one side says no, and they debate because rhetoric was a big thing in ancient Greece. Okay. And then you basically have your conclusion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> where where they basically say this happy idea may be good, maybe bad. I don't know. Let's go have some goat meat and wine. <laughs> okay, so that's that's the structure of Greek comedy. Your prologue, your parados, your parabasis, your episodes and agon, and then they get it over with. <laughs> oh. And this one I read, it was only like 45 pages long. So, you know, I can only imagine like this would only be what, 90 minutes or so when you yeah. put it up, you know. And I mean, Lysistrata, like when you did it, can you remember how long that one was? Um, I think... Yeah, I don't remember us even having an intermission. I think we it was like we did it like I think it was like eighty minutes, no intermission, mm-hmm. which is my favorite. Isn't that great? God, oh my god! I directed uh, American Idiot a few years ago, and that was how they set that up. And I think it was like a hundred minutes long and no intermission. And I had people come up to me afterwards. They're like, "But I wanted to go get a drink," and I'm like, "Oh." We should have done that. So we would have enjoyed the show more. Anyway. Oh! (laughs) They still liked it. I feel the house every time. Anyway. Okay. So here we go. The plot of the clouds. Okay. We start with the prologue, the happy idea being introduced. At the play's start, we meet Athenian citizen Strepsiades. (laughs) That sounds like something I need an antibiotic for. <laughs> I got a good case of the Strepsiades. Don't ask me where I got it. Right. <laughs> so we meet Strepsiades, who wakes from a fitful sleep, complaining to the audience about how he's having trouble sleeping because he is in debt. Same. Yeah, who isn't, right? Welcome to America. Yeah. Sleeping next to him is his son, Fidipides. <laughs> Do, 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 do. I don't know. <laughs> Phidippides? Phidippides. P-H-I-D-I-P-P-I-D-E-S. Phidippides. Phidippides. You just want a, like a, a clown horn after that. This right. is my son. Phidippides. <laughs> <laughs> so sleeping next to him is his son Phidippides, who is kicking his father in his sleep as he happily dreams about horses. Oh, my God. We're not getting into Equus territory, I promise. No, thank God. (laughs) I want the horses. I want them to be blind. No, he's talking. He's talking about uh, horse racing and stuff. And so he's like, oh, my horse that's winning, please. Oh, no. Why is he not winning? (laughs) Yeah. So Strepsiades is confounded by this as well. His son kicking him in his sleep as he claims that some of the debts he's gotten into are to satisfy his son's interest in betting on horse races. A trait that was encouraged by Strepsiades' metropolitan wife. <laughs> you know those city wives. I those mean. city wives and their horse racing. You must go bet, son. <laughs> Strepsiades otherwise claims to be more provincial, but married into a wealthy family for his own benefit, and now sees himself as paying for that decision. <laughs> He even, oh God, this is great. He even complains about how his wife demanded that when their son was born, his name must have some reference to horses in it. The Greek word for horse is hippo. H-I-P-P-O. Oh. Yep. 
Okay. So yeah, I think hippopotamus, when you really break it down, is either river cow or river horse or something like that. Interesting. So yeah, I, I mean, I remember that like when I was a kid, I used to collect a whole bunch of stuff about dinosaurs. My mother got me a sticker book that you'd have to go to the store and buy new stickers. And, you know, you could, yeah, they were collecting. I'm shocked that a nerd boy liked dinosaurs. What? I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I, the Hippocratic Oath. I wonder if they're tied together. Okay, I don't want to get us off track. I'm fascinated. I don't with that, know. No, I think that's named after Hippocrates, but I don't know. Okay, but yeah, hippo. And I was going to say in in the early fossil records, there's like a horse, uh, like a horse uh, ancestor, kind of like Homo habilis is to us, uh, that it was named Eohippus. And I was like, oh, okay. So they they found that and stuck it in there somehow to be yeah. like early horse or something like that. So yeah. So anyway, you have uh, Strepsietti's wife wants to name her, their son after uh, have, having something to do with horses. Strepsietti's wanted to name him after his grandfather, Fidonides. So they compromised, mashed them together, and made a name that sounded ridiculous. Fidipides. Fidipides. <laughs> so, completely frustrated with the situation, Strepsiades makes a plan to figure out how to get out of his debts by talking his way out of them. Mm. But he realizes he's not smart enough to do so. <laughs> he wakes his son to tell him his plan, who is at first amenable. Says, Dad, that sounds great. But then Phidippides sours to the idea when he finds out that his father intends to enroll him at The Thinkery, a school of progressive thought run by none other than the Greek pioneer of education and philosophy, Socrates. Ah. Uh... The thinker. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a, a real party place. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Now, before we continue, I should say there are a few things you need to realize about Socrates and the clouds. First of all, Socrates was alive when the clouds was written and performed. <laughs> oh, nice. All right. There's this great story of a foreigner attending the festival at which the clouds was performed. And at the end of the play, the foreigner stood up and shouted, who is this Socrates? Then a man stands from the crowd and waves. It was Socrates. Oh my God. It's like, I'm right here. No. (laughs) Do we think he knew he was featured in that show or did he show up and be like, what the hell? Oh, well, check this out. This is great. Next, something to consider is that this was not the only play at the same festival that year to feature Socrates as a controversial character. (laughs) Wow. So everybody's talking about him. Like he is such an influential figure in society that, of course, we're going to talk about him because we're talking about issues that affect everybody in the society. Mm -hmm. And so we're putting them to the test and see if they actually work. In a second here, I'll, I'll talk about some blatant misrepresentations of Socrates that they had in this play. And I think everybody would have known it, but it's kind of fun to think like, I don't know. Uh, what if Elon Musk ran Dairy Queen? And so they would, that's kind of how they would do that, you know? Yeah. I mean, hey, I joined Threads this week. Thanks, you Zuckerberg. Yeah. Anyway, so without getting into it too deeply, it can be understood that the state of education in Athens at the time was somewhat controversial. You have this new guy coming up with brand new thought, and everybody's going, no, we didn't learn that way before. And he's like, yeah, but you can now. 
It makes me think about the number of parents out there in America right now demanding that books be banned in public schools mm. rather than take personal responsibility to talk to their children about difficult subject matter. <laughs> Mommy, what is this sex? No, you shouldn't learn about that. God, just talk to your kids. It's not that hard. What are you? Are you really that afraid of them? You idiots. Anyway, okay. Off my soapbox. Here we go. We'll leave that to Aristophanes. <laughs> Finally, here's a great quote I found about the history around the clouds. It seems pretty significant to consider. The philosopher Socrates did not, in fact, have a school and did not accept payment for his teaching as the fiction of the clouds has it. Instead, Aristophanes uses air quotes, Socrates in the clouds as representative of the educational problems facing contemporary Athens. Hmm. In the 5th century BCE, influential teachers known as sophists were at the helm of education, and the training they provided in rhetoric and persuasion was critical for those with political ambition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's just like, uh, I hate to bring it up. We keep bringing up controversial topics, but that's what we're talking about. We're talking about controversial topics. And and with the Supreme Court's decision last, uh, you know, recently to have affirmative action be something that has to be removed in considering students, like there has been so much that said, okay, so if you want to get into an Ivy League school, you have to have been from a family that has donated to it. That's like 33% of admissions right there. A third of admissions are because a wealthy family has said, my name is on the hall of the dormitory and you should let my son in and that's that's just how that works you know so it's like of course they're all going to be coming from a particular string of thought mm -hmm. and so it sounds like this was kind of going on in athens at the time where if you wanted to be in politics at all you had to go to one of these schools and socrates was going well that's not the point of education the point of education is to learn more stuff and be curious about the world so having him be the head of a thing he he's probably sitting out there like enjoying the joke <laughs> right. yeah okay just say i'm doing it everybody knows otherwise but yeah um, okay so here's here's uh here's the rest of that quote kind of going on with what i was just saying enriched by tuition fees sophists were often portrayed as having a certain mercenary slickness and suspected of teaching manipulative tricks rather than the pursuit of truth or the good life indeed it was mainly for this reason that socrates distinguished himself from the sophists by dressing plainly and refusing to accept money for training in philosophical inquiry end quote that sounds I, I'm glad to see that humankind has not evolved past because I'm like, I did I just read something along those lines last week? Yes, I did. Yep, exactly. And and you're like, well, at least there was somebody trying to change things. Right. And, right. I mean, the unfortunate side is later he was poisoned for what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, we don't know what you're teaching. Drink this. He's like, okay, but you're you're fucked after this. Okay, bye. <laughs> Okay, so all that aside, back to the story. Strepsiades, disappointed in his son's refusal to enroll in the thinkery, then decides to enroll himself in spite of his advancing age because he's convinced he can come up with a method to put his debt cancellation plan into action. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll remind everybody, this is about nothing more than making sure he can get out of two specific debts. <laughs> I mean, whatever gets you into school, right? That's <laughs> <I guess. laughs> 
just love it. I find that in a lot of comedies and a lot of farce where rather than taking whatever the easiest path to the solution is, there's this elaborate plan (laughs) as a workaround (laughs) that turns into something so gigantic and ridiculous. I love it. Oh my God. It's just so absurd. It's so absurd. Yeah. And, and exactly. I mean, you know, when you say, what if I could just talk myself out of legal commitments? (laughs) So upon arriving at the thinkery, Strepsiades meets one of Socrates' disciples, who then begins to deliver a laundry list of discoveries and studies the thinkery has recently extolled, including (laughs) one thinker recently discovered a new unit of measurement known as the flea's foot. Anything but metric, I swear to God. Yep, yep, yep. Now, the flea's foot... This philosopher was able to figure out how far a flea could jump by tricking the flea to jump into barely melted wax and seeing where the flea's wax print landed next. (laughs) Uh, That's kind of genius, I think. Okay, so you figured out how far a flea could jump, but what you did with it was create a unit of measurement that now everybody has to adhere to, which is the flea's foot. Now we measure by the flea's foot. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, One thinker has recently discovered the reason that a flying gnat makes a buzzing sound. You see, the gnat's innards are hollow, and its rear end is funnel-shaped like a trumpet. Thus, its gaseous expulsions make a microscopic sound like a trumpet, and therefore a buzz. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I love that they were really like with the hard hitting issues and the stuff that people really needed to improve their lives. And <laughs> look, I'm fine with understanding why the world turns and we understand that we are in a solar system, but why, why do fleas make noise? Why do gnats make noise? <laughs> What's going on with their butts? And remember, this is the first of many fart jokes in this play. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, we got to remember, uh, I will challenge my listeners to go back and listen to episodes 11 and 12. I think that was the uh, the Festival of Dionysus and the Rites of Dionysus and the episode on the phallus. I mean, dick jokes have been serving mankind for thousands oh, of Oh, man. Hey, when you did Lysistrata, did your men wear phalluses? Oh, yes, they did. Yes! Oh, I love it. I love the it. Keep it old department school. had a great time with those ones. <laughs> I did a comedia show several years ago, and one of our actors demanded that as his for his pantalone, he would have a money bag that was suspended from his belt. So, you know, it was just like a pouch. But he was like, no, I want it on a really long string that there's like this pathetic, wimpy little sack at the end that has like four <laughs> or five coins in it. And we were all like, yeah, we get it. Okay, it's a dick joke. (laughs) Let's just shoehorn that in here, why don't we? Strepsiades is amazed by all of this. Oh my god, gnat farts and fleas jumping in wax. Wow. (laughs) Including when he sees a particular sight and the following exchange occurs. Strepsiades says... But what are those fellows doing who are all bent double? 
And what is their rump looking at in the heavens? The disciple says, it is studying astronomy on its own account. <laughs> so their faces are studying geology by looking at the earth, and their assholes are looking straight up to the sky to study the heavens. That's a lovely image. I cannot wait to take that apart. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I mean, you know, hey, look, you're, you're doubling your efforts. That's all I know. That's what I'm hearing. Right? <laughs> so fascinated by all of this, Strepsiades is soon introduced to the incredible headmaster, Socrates, who comes in suspended in a basket several feet off the ground, claiming that it will help him study the heavens with more accuracy as it, air quotes, suspends his preconceived notions of the subject matter he's studying in order to welcome new ideas. <laughs> Put me up in the sky. Suspend me so I can suspend right? my preconceived notions. Like, theoretically... Suspend your preconceived notions, right? Like, yeah. that makes sense to me, but the path to it, I was like, right, you do you, brother. No, <laughs> that's the way you do suspend things, is by being suspended. <laughs> Put me in a basket. Yeah, I'll learn a lot. So Socrates comes down, and delighted to have a new student, he conducts the initiation ceremony for a new student. An introduction to the real gods of the universe the clouds where he directs the focus of strepsiades and reverence just look up there look at them those are the real conveyors of the planets in the world <laughs> <laughs> so there's your prologue now we have the parados the introduction to the chorus the clouds and soon the chorus appears as a throng of masked women somewhat dressed as clouds but nonetheless impressive <laughs> and i will uh, this will be a reminder that often when a better title for a greek play could not be devised it would often be named after the what the chorus represents so you have plays like the libation bearers and that's that's who you know the humanities <laughs> okay in this case it's the clouds played by men pretending to be women Drag. Now, dra oh, mm, sorry, Tennessee. Guess he won't be seeing the clouds anytime soon. Yep. Anyway. <laughs> so Strepsiades is so impressed by the introduction and the fanfare of the clouds and their accompanying thunder. He says the following. Oh, adorable clouds. I revere you. And I too am going to let off my thunder so greatly as your own affrighted me. Faith. Whether permitted or not, I must, I must crap. That's, that's where he went with that. He's, <laughs> you have impressed me so much, I shit myself. I, yeah, my only reaction is to take a massive dump. Thank you. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, I mean, they were thundering so much, he released his own thunder. And, you know, <laughs> sometimes you can't trust the thunder. You know what right? I'm saying? <laughs> That truly was the thunder from down under. Boom. Boom. So as I said, 
It soon comes as a great surprise to Strepsiades to find out that the pantheon of gods he has come to know is not really in charge of the world, but rather these clouds to which he has just been introduced. In fact, Socrates declares that these gods don't even exist and proves it several ways through rhetoric alone. For example, he proves to Strepsiades that it wasn't actually Zeus who lets rain fall to the ground. It's these clouds. Their appearance every time it rains is proof enough. Okay, like sound reasoning. Okay. In fact, Socrates goes even further in describing why the clouds let rain fall. It's because they get full of water and thus make noise when they interact with each other. It's kind of like water balloons. (laughs) You can still hear the water in them if they're full and, you know, shaking around in your hand. Socrates proves it by asking Strepsiades what happens when he fills himself with stew at the regularly occurring Panathenaia festival. In response, Strepsiades responds with this quote, Yes, yes, by Apollo, I suffer, I get colic. And then the set sets a growling like thunder and finally bursts forth with a terrific noise. Oh my God. Here's okay. We could stop there. He just made a fart joke again. But no, here we go. He continues. At first, tis but a little gurgling. Papax, papax. Then it increases. Papapax. And when I seek relief, why, tis thunder indeed! Pa-pa-pa-pa-pax, pa-pax, pa-pa-pa-pax, just like the clouds! Oh my god. I had to include that, because I'm like, that's what you think farts sound like. I, I don't know what was going on dietarily for them, like, maybe that's what was happening. God bless it. My humans, our sense of humor, like, funny then. I love that, like, 2,000 years ago, a fart was hilarious, cracks me up now. Farts hilarious now. And, you know, we elevate, like, the Greeks, we elevate all these, you know, these classical texts, right, as being, like, <laughs> superior and learned and elevated and whatever, and it's mm-hmm. all dicks and farts. Like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, right. and, and sex and chasing around men and women and, oh, yes, indeed. So, after declaring his reverence to the clouds, and thus the thinkery, The clouds ask Strepsiades what he would have them bestow upon him. He responds that he would like the ability to relieve his debts solely through rhetoric, and is currently not smart enough to do it. Being utterly impressed by his loyalty, the clouds agree, and Socrates ushers Strepsiades into the school to begin his training. Oh. I don't know how you feel about this, but this is starting to sound to me a lot like today's educational climate, isn't it? And I don't usually get too political on here, but hey, that's what we're talking about today. Addressing difficult topics that affect a majority of people, but through the lens of humor. And Lisa and I dive much deeper into that in the second half. But before we get back to that, I encourage you to follow the show on Instagram at either the Euripides Amenities or Trident Theater Instagram pages. Subscribe, follow, rate, review, all that stuff. I'd love to hear what you think of the show. But speaking of the show, let's get back to Lisa Bertel and the second half of The Clouds. So, 
That's like, <laughs> you know, we're looking at that and going, God, that's a great place for an intermission. Well, right. you're not wrong. Here is where we have the parabasis. This is where the chorus starts to point out the flaw of the happy idea. Now, this is what Greek audiences would expect. They're like, okay, now the chorus is going to tell us what's going to go wrong with this whole thing. And, right. You know, it's kind of like, you know, when we go to a, a comedy today, be it ancient, be it modern, you know, we kind of know at the end of it, we're going to have a good laugh and we're going to have a good time. You know, I just got done with a production of Noises Off and oh, I had... Did? Yeah, yeah, I played Lloyd. You did? Uh, I did. I played Dottie. Oh, of course you were Dottie. I would love to have you as a Dottie. I mean, my Dottie was fantastic, but I would love to play opposite you as Dottie. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I had people afterwards coming to me, and they're like, I was tired from laughing. And I'm like, you were tired. <laughs> I know! <laughs> but I mean, like, we get to a point where we go, we know something's going to happen. You know, um, I can think of one man, two governors, where, you know, you have the guy who's just he's he's trying to he's the servant of two masters. Huh? Right. Right. And and he's just trying to get as much food as he can for himself. But things are always going wrong. And right. that's what we look at that and we go, God, that's funny. I know something's going to happen to this character and it's going to be awful. And if I were in his shoes, I would feel terrible. But I'm not in his shoes. I'm sitting comfortably in an audience. I have a drink in my hand. I have popcorn in my lap. And let's go. You know? Yep. Yep. <laughs> So we know what's coming and Greek audiences knew the parabasis was coming and they're like, great. Well, let's see what's going to happen with trying to get your way out of rhetoric. <laughs> the cloud somewhat stands apart in its parabasis because Aristophanes decides to break convention pretty much completely. Ooh, okay. Lisa, you're going to love this. <laughs> Albeit somewhat indirectly poking fun at the idea of people using philosophy to better themselves in society by voting who they believe would be the most sound candidate, Aristophanes uses this parabasis in the middle of his play as a soapbox on an entirely different level. As you may recall, ancient Greek playwrights would submit their plays for consideration to the festival known as the City Dionysia each year to be presented to the public. And very few of them were chosen out of many, many entries. Aristophanes seemed to be getting in year after year and won the top prize several times. However, in the years leading up to the presentation of the clouds, Aristophanes seems to indicate in this parabasis that he wasn't pleased that he hadn't won the award recently. <laughs> Oh, bless it. Oh, okay. And this is an annual thing, so he'd be waiting potentially for more than a year to say some of this stuff. In any case, rather than discuss the idea of using rhetoric as a method of debt relief, the clouds parabasis berates the crowd and the judges for voting for other playwrights to win the top award in prior years, saying that this play that they're currently watching is by far the wittiest play that Aristophanes has ever written. <laughs> I wish I had been in the audience for that. Like, just, I mean, I can't imagine what the crowd reaction would have been like, right? Yeah, you're just sitting there like, yeah, but what does this have to do? Oh, oh. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> going there. oh my God, he did it. Uh, he, he did it. He did it. He went after us. Oh my God. The clouds also point out the ingenuity of Aristophanes in satirizing current political figures, such as Athenian general Cleon. Now I'm not going to go too far into it. There's quite a history behind it, but apparently Cleon and Aristophanes had some serious beef. 
and were quite public about it. Well, rather than just spout off in the agora to whoever might be around to listen, Aristophanes rather wrote his critique into his play, naming Cleon outright and further admonishing him in front of a captive audience of thousands, as well as criticizing the citizens for putting faith in such a figure. <laughs> I love it. I feel like he went in there and he's like, I'm burning it all down and come what may, right? <laughs> what the hell? I mean, you're going to invite me in next year anyway. I'm that good. Right. <laughs> and this is all spoken by the chorus to the to the crowd. They conclude by also criticizing the people for fiddling around with the calendar. Because apparently this was going on at the time they're trying to figure out, oh, no, this month starts here or this cycle starts here. And it was putting the calendar out of sync with the moon, which the calendar was based on. Oh, my God. <laughs> so in a way, he's going, look, reasoning your way, using reason to say, hey, we can change the calendar is like, hey, that's exactly what we're talking about in this play don't use reason to get out of things that are naturally supposed to occur. Okay. Right. right. <laughs> and then the clouds just leave, not having addressed the issue or anything about Strepsiades and his quest. Parabase is over. <laughs> Can you imagine being one of the actors in that? Like, I'm sure they were all used to a certain way of doing things. And I've yep. certainly been in those shows where I'm, I'm walking out on stage. I'm like, this is not going to go well. <laughs> right but you got to give it your all anyway and they probably yep. went back to the green room or whatever and were like oh my god dude what happened? what just happened <laughs> i mean did you did you at least get paid okay yeah well i guess we got that yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> did they get craft services all right cool <laughs> so this leads us to the episodes and the agon putting the happy idea to the test in the real world so after the clouds finish verbally abusing the crowd, <laughs> Socrates appears and vents to the crowd about how terrible of a student Strepsiades has become. <laughs> oh, my God. I think my favorite quote about it had something to do with this, and I'm probably paraphrasing. He forgets each lesson even before it's over. <laughs> <laughs> Is that his fault or is it just a boring teacher? Mm, that could be. I mean, you know, we could talk about the status of education today where we're training towards the standardized test so the schools stay open, but I digress. But we digress. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so Strepsiades soon follows him out. And there are a few attempts by Socrates to reinvigorate the mind of the addled old man, including a test on the genders of nouns, which was a thing, you know, you still hear that in some romance languages, like nouns have certain genders and stuff like that, right? So he gives Strepsiades a test on the genders of nouns. Strepsiades can't master this at all. Socrates attempts to have Strepsiades get into a meditative state and just go, okay, just let whatever come into your mind, just let it guide you. <laughs> and in this a beginning of his meditative state, Strepsiades can only think about the bugs on the pillow that are biting him. <laughs> and that's all he's talking about. Socrates then puts a blanket over Strepsiades in order to block out distractions. When asked if he's concentrating on anything, Strepsiades replies, Only what I have in my hand. 
suggesting that Strepsiades has a firm grasp on his phallus. Oh my god. Oh. Well, come on, you put me in the dark. What else am I going to do? I know. Yeah, two seconds under the blanket, and I like I just had to go for it, right? I had to go for it. I mean, you know, I've been without ladies since I got here. Oh my god. So Socrates eventually just gives up and leaves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're hopeless. The clouds then suggest to Strepsiades that he should get someone younger to take his place at the thinkery. <laughs> Strepsiades goes immediately to his son, Phidippides, who reluctantly agrees. <laughs> he didn't want to at the beginning. Now he's right. like, okay, I'm going to do it, but only because it's going to get you out of debt. So this is another place where Aristophanes goes away from the classic structure because he, instead of one agon, he has two. And this is where I'll say agon. This was interesting to me in my studies on this. This is where we get our words protagonist and antagonist. Interesting. Right? Because the protagonist is trying to is trying to make his way through the world and then antagonism strikes, be it another character or be it a circumstance of the world or whatever. Right, right. So in this, you have two sides of the debate, the agon. Okay. When Strepsiades and Phidippides return to the thinkery for Phidippides training, they are met by two men. The two men are named superior argument or just discourse and inferior argument or unjust discourse <laughs> so truth and reason or right. trickery <laughs> right the two show Phidippides how they will be debating and whether one or the other will be more victorious just discourse bases all his logic on the old ways of Athens, which pay reverence to the gods and the foundations of ancient Greek culture and thinking and are very critical of any new ways of thinking. Unjust discourse is exactly the opposite and promises to train Phidippides how to talk his way out of trouble and into a life of ease without much effort. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to work for it just no. just just con everybody right at the end it is determined that many of athens top citizens have been educated in the unjust school of thought which has gotten them into the highest places in the city-state I'm sure that's not still going on today. No, absolutely not. Everybody is 100% hunky-dory. They, yes, yeah, there's nothing crooked going on in our government. Unjust discourse is then awarded Phidippides as a pupil, and they go into the school to begin, and Strepsiades goes home, pleased that his son is taking over for him. Also thinking, cool, I'm going to get out of debt because he's got the greatest tutor in the world. Oh, my God. And then we get another parabasis in which the clouds come out and remind the audience that if they award this play first prize, the clouds themselves will bless the land with fertile rains for the next year. If not, they will bestow the rains to Egypt. <laughs> I He had no shame. That was, that's incredible. I mean, just take it, buddy. You got into the festival. Everybody's watching your stuff. So what if you didn't get the top prize? I think the top prize was some monetary gain and a goat. 
I know, but like, give me the prize or all your crops and your livestock are going to die. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but you know, tempt the fates, why don't you? Let's see what happens. Oh my God. Uh, Then, Strepsiades returns to the thinkery after the clouds berate the audience one more time. Strepsiades comes back to the thinkery to retrieve his son who has now turned from the horse race fanatic into a bookish and confident young man ready to face any adversary with his armament of rhetorical practices. (laughs) And that's the funny thing about this. Like, I had a hard time reading this and going like, oh, we just went from Strepsiades' house and now we're at the Thinkery. There was no transitional anything because they were like, we don't have scenery behind us. I mean, there's some suggestion that scene, you know, there was some scenic stuff in ancient Greek theater, but they were just like, hey, now we're here. And that's, they would announce it and everybody's like, oh, I guess they're there now, you know? Um, <laughs> so in this one, it's like Strepsiades goes home, the clouds come out and go, give this first prize. And then they leave and Strepsiades comes back and goes, well, I guess I'll see how he he's doing he's got all of his education now like how long does this take just add water i don't know (laughs) we didn't have that like (laughs) 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 they didn't do a montage like in all the rocky movies you know right anyway so on their way home strepsiades is confronted by i'm probably going to say this wrong pasias one of his creditors, or Pasias, Pasias. Strepsiades tries to humiliate Pasias and with some of the devices he incorrectly learned during his time at the Thinkery, including asking Pasias to name different things by their gender, and he gets them right, but Strepsiades is like, you blew that one. And so he says, well, I'm going to have my son just annihilate you, and Pasias just leaves completely frustrated. Ha ha ha. And then soon after that, Strepsiades is confronted by Aminius, the other man to whom he's in debt. And he deflects Aminius in a similar fashion, certain that his son will be able to relieve Strepsiades of his debt. (laughs) And then, after those two interactions, the chorus comes out yet again and gives us an actual parabasis. (laughs) Oh my god. This time, the clouds come out and address the plot. And how the happy idea is now turning on Strepsiades. Now he's cocky about it. And now he thinks it's going to get him out of anything without knowing how to properly use it. They warn of a great problem looming over the house of Strepsiades. And then they disappear just as quickly as they appeared. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, we forgot to do the parabasis right. Uh, there's bad shit happening. Bye. Woo! So, here are the final episodes of The Clouds. This is great. Strepsiades soon is seen running out of his house, crying that his son has just been beating him relentlessly. Pheidippides comes out and uses rhetoric to justify that he is right to beat his father. He debates that since Strepsiades beat Pheidippides in his youth, mainly because he was a youth, and that's how parents train a youth, Pheidippides is justified in beating his father since now his father is older and is as incapable as a child again in his advanced age. Way to turn it around. That's pretty... He did learn something. Boom. So I get to kick your ass anytime I want because that's how you train a child. Oh my God. Oh my God. 
when Strepsiades tries to debate this point, Pheidippides claims that he can ease his father's mind in dealing with what he considers unfair. Pheidippides will make it even by beating his mother, Strepsiades' wife, just as severely. <laughs> oh my god! Don't worry, man. Don't worry. It's not all that bad. You won't be the only one experiencing it. <laughs> comedy, comedy. <laughs> oh, jeez. So Pheidippides leaves going like, okay, I own the world now. And an enraged Strepsiades then vows to destroy the thinkery. He descends upon the school in a wrath and starts tearing it apart. And the disciples of the thinkery, you know, the men who are bent over so their assholes can study the heavens, right, are all running around and cry out, astonished. They flee from the building. I don't know what's going on. And the clouds, having nothing more to do, leave. <laughs> okay. They're like, yeah, this is outside my pay grade. Bye. Yeah. Yeah, we told you this would happen. So peace out. And Lisa... That's the end of the play. Are you serious? <laughs> and the way they, that blows my mind because the way they painted that character for, as kind of an idiot, right? He's mm -hmm. not in his right mind. This one old man tearing a school down with his bare hands and everybody's like, well, I guess we can't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh no they didn't teach us how to defend ourselves i know how far a flea can jump but i don't know how to right. put up my hands you know? i mean if you want to talk about gnats and their butt wind i've got you i'm <laughs> on it you want to talk about throwing a punch no i'm out oh my god that is insane, and my head hurts a little bit. You know, I actually, I think I have the play. I cannot wait to read it for real just oh my to God. see, like... Yeah, I, I picked up a version from my local library that I think the book was published in, like, the 1920s. So, wow. you know, it's before, like, when you when it's credited, who actually did the translation of this and where they're from and everything. It's just yeah. like... Uh, I'm, I'm looking here. It says it's uh, who knows who it's translated by. I'm guessing it's this guy, Sir George Young, because he translated a couple other things. But, ooh, wow, in this book as well is the Cyclops by Euripides translated by Percy B. Shelley. No shit. I might have to read that. <laughs> I, the mind boggles at what that interpretation would be. I'm very, oh, excited. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But the clouds, oh man, this was a fun journey because like I found myself like sitting in a coffee shop, having my latte in front of me. It's a quiet little place and I'm reading this ancient Greek comedy going, okay, I better at least know what I'm talking about as I'm going through this and literally laughing out loud at some points. And I could just see people looking at me and I'm like, eh, old comedy, you know. <laughs> you wouldn't get it. It's ancient Greek. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I think about that in terms today, though, and I, I often tell people, like, satire is some of the best theater I ever see, and especially when they take on huge things. Yeah. Hey, parents out there, feel free to send me some hate mail, but I'm going to tell you, my 15-year-old, my 12-year-old love watching old reruns of South Park with me. You know, some of the best stuff out there. I got to say it. I'm a little disappointed in myself. My, the woman who walks beside me, Andra, when we were in New York last week, went on her own to see the 9-11 memorial my kids were kind of like i don't really want to see that i don't want to bring the whole trip down and feel like 
down about things. I'm like, ah, okay, I get it. And I'm not going to send you back to the hotel by yourself. So I'll go. She's, she's a grown person. She can take care of herself and, and everything. But I, you know, I mean, you and I, we lived through that. Like, yeah. you know, my kids don't quite get it. You know, I'm like, there are things about that, that still, you know, talk to you in your days right now. Like, you know, hey, we just went through airports and and we have to go through crazy security measures, but it's so we don't have another incident like that again. Right. But South Park did an episode very soon after the 9-11 attacks where they turned Osama bin Laden into like a Bugs Bunny type villain. Oh my God. And Eric Cartman was the Bugs Bunny like, you know, he's getting ready to film another threat video that's filmed in one of his fucking caves somewhere. Right. And Cartman comes out as like this pissy director and he's got like a beret and a pink shirt and it's open and he's like, oh, my God, you just look like shit. Let's get you into hair and makeup right now. And Osama bin Laden is like, oh, okay. And he takes him behind like a curtain and dresses him in an Uncle Sam costume. <laughs> oh my God. And you're like, it's exactly the thing that he wouldn't want to do. And there are things like, you know, pulling down his pants and giving him exploding cigars and everything. And it was just the piece of satire that at that moment I needed to relieve right. that whole thing. And I have seen some of the best satire come out of the South Park guys. I mean, listeners, if you want to go back, I did two episodes with producer Richard Jordan on the Book of Mormon and why it was so effective. And the satire is a huge part of it. Being able to look at a topic seriously like that and not run away from it, not shy away from it, talk about it. It gives me some relief to be able to to access those topics through satire. Do you know what I mean? So it feels like I can laugh. I can react in the way I need to react. I can get, I, and I've learned things. Like I've gone to see a satire. I was like, oh, I didn't actually know that about the real thing until right mm-hmm. now. And it gave me an in, which I might not have had before. So, Right, right. And I think of things like, I hate to bring him up on the show, but like Donald Trump and then Alec Baldwin playing Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. You know, where it's like, that was brilliant because it was in real time. It was like, whatever he said that week, we could make fun of it at the end of the week. Yeah. And you and you have somebody who is committed to that week after week after week. And, you know, say what you will about Alec Baldwin. I know he's been a controversial figure in the recent years. But at the same time, we are facing things like where you have this very fervent side of the country all standing behind one person. Then you have this very fervent other side of the country. And they're all going, absolutely not. And we're going, what do we do with these feelings? And, you know, I mean, you can talk about like romance and love and greed and uh, ambition to political heights and everything. And you talk about those in terms of tragedy. But my God, when they're brought up in comedy, it's almost as though it's an easier pill to swallow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I would love to see a, a version of the clouds redone today talking about I brought it up earlier, uh, standardized testing in American public schools, you know, I mean, whereas we're taught the flea's foot is a worthwhile venture, (laughs) but I don't know. I mean, that's been a controversial topic for years, standardized testing. What is, what's the efficacy of it? What, what -hmm. is the purpose of it? You know, I think, I think there's plenty of stuff out there that we can talk about. And I think, you know, where the, you know, the place where it's always talked about 
is stand-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's sort of the last, I don't know. I watch a lot of stand-up, and it feels like one of the only kind of safe places where people can really, really, honestly and brutally, but in the guise of comedy, talk about these things that are, are, are going on that are so difficult and uh yeah well you know here's one that i will say has been incredibly effective before we finish up here think about hannibal burris talking about bill cosby oh God. and talking about sexual predators and i mean took it down i i can't think of jello and coca-cola and bill cosby's mugging and his weird faces and everything without thinking like yeah but he was also this and it's a good thing it's a good thing that that happened because now you can go, okay, so on one surface, a person can be 100% likable and, you know, America's dad. But on the other side of that coin is a really dark surface that we need to expose. And it came out of political commentary and comedy. Amazing. Right? So there we go. <laughs> The Clouds, Aristophanes. Lisa, what do you think? I can't wait to read it. I'm kind of mind blown by how relevant it still is. How relevant, like, I mean, obviously this one's a little wackadoo, but the the structure, the messaging, just all of it. And I don't know if I'm like thrilled or heartbroken that humanity is still humanity. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> how many hundreds, thousands of years later that we're still like, oh man, this is deep in the DNA, you know, like this... Uh, behavior and <laughs> I can't wait. I'm, thank you for bringing me in on this. I'm excited to read it. Well, I mean, if it is any solace to you, yes, those things might be part of our DNA, but so are dick and fart jokes. <laughs> yeah, I just saw like you know I I forget who did it, but there's a, a drawing of a big giant dick on the moon. I don't know if they did it what? with a robot or something. I'll send you a picture, but like that's humanity. Fart and dick jokes, and we're still there. And we're still there. Well, there you have it. The more things change, the more they stay the same. But I don't know about you. I think if a modern audience could grasp the structure of an ancient Greek comedy, they'd, they'd really speak to a lot more people than expected. My great thanks goes out to Lisa Bertel for her contributions to this episode, and if you're up in the Seattle area, it sounds like you've got a pretty good chance of seeing her on stage for the foreseeable future. You won't be disappointed. But for now, I'll sign off. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming. Another episode will be in your ears in another two weeks, and I will see you at intermission. A lot down, a lot down.